Hello, dear friends. Welcome again to On Mike with Jordan Rich, the podcast that the podcast that highlights conversation with creative people. And today, no exception. First, a thank you to those of you who have ordered my book, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio. Details at jordanrich.com. All proceeds benefit Boston Children's Hospital. Today's guest is terrific. His name is Richard Lertzman, and he, along with Lon Davis, has written Deconstructing the Rat Pack, Joey, the Mob, and the Summit. The Rat Pack, in this case, with a capital T, featuring the chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, and, of course, Joey Bishop, among others. His book is a tell-all that brings the inside scoop of just how the mob, a future president, and five extraordinary performers took the world and Las Vegas by storm. So, without any further ado, let's invite Richard A. Lertzman to join us on mic. I'll begin with this. I just saw Ocean's Eleven for the first time in about 50 years, <laughs> and it was so much fun. And it was perfect timing because here's your book, and there's so much here that revolves around this group of individuals. Welcome. It's nice to meet you, Richard. Nice to meet you. Thank you, Jordan. So it's the 60th anniversary of the Rat Pack celebration. Uh, is there an actual start date to this particular group of Rat Packers or what? Yeah, the start date was February of 1960. And uh, they were loose-based friends, professional friends, um, that, and uh, they had uh, known each other. Um, they, they really hadn't worked together, and uh, it came together in uh, 1959. Frank owned 9% of the Sands Hotel, and he had watched this great act, Louis Prima and Keeley Smith and Sam Butera at the Sahara's Lounge Act, and he loved that looseness, that craziness of Prima. And uh, when the um, owners and the uh, the uh, publicist named Al Freeman came to Frank and said they wanted to create a mega event, he thought of uh, of Dean Martin he had just worked with in Some Come Running in a film, and he thought of uh, of Sammy Davis Jr. who was just recovering from losing his eye in a tra- in a car accident. And Frank was kind of pushing him back, get him back on stage, get his balance. And he thought it was great. And Joey Bishop happened to be uh, Frank's opening act for, for about eight, nine years. So he thought of putting them together. You know, earlier in Homely Hills, he was part of a group with David Niven and Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and Mickey Rooney. And uh, Lauren Bacall calls, so you look like a pack of rats. Hmm. James Bacon called them the rat pack. So when these guys get to, got together, the press started calling them the rat pack. And in February 1960, they got together. Interesting. Yeah, I heard about the the bogey rat pack from a lot of reading on Humphrey Bogart and all that, and that's kind of cool. And Lauren Bacall was a young, beautiful lady, and she had to yeah. – <laughs> she somehow st- stuck it out with those guys and was able to yeah. put up with them and maybe drink with them, I think. Yeah. I, I mentioned the movie, and was that a, a planned coming-out party for the rat pack, or where, where did the movie fit in, uh, Ocean's Eleven? all very planned. Uh, when they started putting together the uh, summit, they called it, in Las Vegas in February of 1960, uh, Peter Lawford had been shopping around this script that he that he got from a gas station attendant who ended up, uh, his name was George Clayton Johnson, right. who ended up later writing all the, a lot of Twilight Zones and Logan's Run. But at that time, he, he based it on, he, in, in the Army, he was in this black market uh, group out of the Army in Germany. And he thought of the idea of bringing the guys, when they came back to, to you know, the U.S., 
have a reunion and to have a heist in Las Vegas. So that was the script. Frank saw the script from Peter Peter Lawford, and he says, "This is so good, you know. Why why shoot the film? Let's just do this." And so Frank hmm. uh, took it to Jack Warner. Jack Warner loved it. So Frank's idea was, "Why not shoot this in Las Vegas, where you own nine percent of the Sands Hotel?" And Jack Warner loved it because here is they got free uh, free uh, shooting uh, sites in Las Vegas. So Frank, the, the idea was to do 28 straight days on stage. They did two shows, 8 o'clock and, and 12 o'clock, 7 bucks a ticket. And during the, during the night, they would do those two, go out into the lounge, into the, into the casino, and, and cause a lot of uproar around the gamblers, wake up at 6 o'clock, and they did uh, a makeup call at 6, and were working all day on the film that Lewis Milestone directed. And they did that for 28 strays right, right in Las Vegas. Well, and talk about a love letter to the city and a catapult for Vegas popularity, particularly entertainment, right? I mean, that lit a fire at that point. Oh, you know, that was the plan of the guys. Guys like Carl Modalitz and Carl Cohn and Maxie Diamond, guys who built the city, the so-called mobsters, they said, you know, they were getting all the traffic from Los Angeles. And they said, why, why, we want to put Las Vegas on the map, and what better to do it with than with Frank Sinatra and his buddies? So when they planned this out, you know, when they announced it in January of 1960, they had 250 rooms at the Sands Hotel. They had 37,000 reservations. So the whole city exploded. And for 28 days, you had everybody wanted to be around Frank, Dean, and Sammy. I mean, everybody wanted to be at that show. You wanted to be seen, be heard. And that included the future president of the United States, who was set up to be there, hmm. John Kennedy by his father, uh, Joe Kennedy, and, and his brother-in-law, Peter Lawford. So it was explosive. I mean, you, you got every film star like Monroe and Cary Grant and, and uh, Gary Cooper. Everybody were flying out or driving into Las Vegas, and, and they wanted to be a part of that energy that, that Frank Dean and Sammy brought. Indeed, and we're talking here with you, Richard Lertzman, who's done a great job on the book. And you had a terrific source, it says, uh, Joey Bishop, who is gone now, but was one of the last to remain, and he granted you quite a few interviews. So you must have gleaned a lot from from his inside perspective. Yeah, yeah for, I, for about 18, 20 years, I got to know Joey. And Joey had burned a lot of bridges, you know, was very unpopular because he was tough on producers. He was tough, really tough on writers had uh, burned a lot of bridges. And so the last 20, 30 years of his life was pretty, uh, he was basically retired out to Newport Beach in, in, uh, in, in where he lived in, 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 a, in, a, in a gated community. And so, I, you know, he really didn't want to, he initially said, I don't want to talk about the Rat Pack. But when it came down to it, he really, this was his high point of his whole career. Because here he was, he was the MC of the inaugural event for John Kennedy because of Frank Sinatra. And there were pictures of Kennedy all over the wall. There were pictures of him and Frank and Dean. Um, and he had great stories to tell. Once his, his toughness burned off, he really shared a lot about uh, what went on during that whole period and about Frank and Dean and Sammy. And and he thought he was the the glue of the Rat Pack. And I, and I hated to tell him, but the Rat Pack was Dean, Frank, and Sammy. Joey was a was a good journeyman comic. Frank used it because uh, he did. He never 
sucked the air out of the room. He wasn't like he brought a Buddy Hackett or Don Rickles or Shecky Green. You know, they would they would mm. exhaust the audience to when Frank came out. Frank wanted the audience just warmed up enough. And that's what Joey did. Joey was um, a guy like Pat Henry later or Tom Dreesen who opened for Frank, who just warmed him up enough for Frank right. to come out. And, do his big show. It makes sense because when you watch whatever exists of the Rat Pack film archives, you realize Frank and Dean are just knocking it out of the park, one-liners and, and Sammy too, and their timing is impeccable. I want to talk about the performances, but I do want to continue to talk about the personalities. Many people who remember Peter Lawford remember him as a suave actor from the 40s and 50s. I think Anything Goes. Uh, no, Good News. That was the movie I remember him in. Right. And a bunch right. of other things. But, I mean, he was not exactly what you would call the typical uh, uh, Italian street kid who becomes a member of a Rat Pack, and yet he does. How much of that is because of his political connections, quote-unquote? Well, it really was almost all because of that. Um, Frank and, and Peter... Uh, had known each other from MGM Studios. And, and I wrote earlier in a book called The Life and Times of Mickey Rooney. Peter Lawford was known to, for his, he was a big gossip around the studio. And he got Mickey in trouble with Ava Gardner, Mickey's first wife. And he did the same with Frank. He got Frank in trouble with Ava Gardner. And in the early 50s, Frank came to a party to to uh, hit Peter in the job for, for what he started with Ava Gardner. So he didn't talk to Peter for a long time. And when Peter got married Patricia Kennedy, Frank was interesting because Frank had done everything you could do in show business. He's won the, he won the Academy Award. He was one of the great singers. You know, he could do he could do everything. But he wanted he loved the idea of being a president maker. So he wanted to get closer to John Kennedy, and, and the only way to do that would be through Peter Lawford. So that's where he got Peter's script. Uh-huh. And when Peter came to him and said that Joe Kennedy wants uh, to bring John Kennedy to the summit for three days and to be seen. Frank accommodated him, and Frank was happy to do that. And uh, Joe Kennedy didn't want his son to look like Richard Nixon, this very stodgy, even though John and Richard Nixon were close to the same age, he looked older and stodgy. He wanted his son to look cool and to a young generation, energetic. And Frank and, and the guys gave him that opportunity. In fact, they eventually started calling him the Jack Pack because <laughs> they support him all through the, that year and right. he ran for president. High hopes and all that, right? The song? Yeah. Campaign well, they, song? They, we did the song for Kennedy at the Democratic Convention in 60. Is there any uh, information that we now know about Kennedy's uh, dalliances any time during that period in Vegas? Was, was he a good boy? In Vegas, in Vegas, he was on his best behavior because he was there for appearances. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what happened was that Joe Kennedy had talked to his old buddies. Joe had, even though Joe was in bad, the ambassador to St. James and was, you know, ambassador to England, and he uh, he uh, had he had known the racketeers because he had worked in prohibition with uh, in, up in Boston. So he went to to Sam Giancana, Momo Giancana and to Meyer Lansky, and to Mo Dalitz. And he said, you know, you, there's a lot of heat in Las Vegas. If, if my son becomes president, we'll draw the heat off of you. He'll make sure he doesn't go after you. And he said, but what I want from you guys is I want a million-dollar campaign donation. And <clears throat> John Kennedy was there as the bag man to pick up that million dollars. Mm. So Sammy, Peter, said, come here, you have to see something. 
And he took Sammy back to Carl Cohn's suite, and in there was a, was a satchel with a million dollars in it with a set of handcuffs. John Kennedy, after these three days, went back on a plane with it handcuffed to his hand of a million dollars in that, the satchel that he took back to Joe Kennedy. That is such so an amazing story. some trouble because Joe had a stroke, and Bobby Kennedy decided to go after Momo Giancana. Right, right. And told him in front of the Senate, don't you, you giggle like a girl, and... Who knows what happened from that? You know, all the conspiracy theories come, yeah. come from but, that. But that is such an incredible story to think that uh, you're talking about cash now, really. We're not talking about a, a chit. We're talking about cash, right? It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a, a regular campaign, campaign donation. It was a <laughs> donation from the wrong guys you don't want to cross. Absolutely. We're talking here with Richard Lertzman, a tremendous new book called Deconstructing the Rat Pack, Joey the Mob and the Summit. And the reason Joey's mentioned is, as we just discussed, he was a big part of... Uh, uh, the interview process for Richard. Take us back a little bit before we talk about what eventually befell them and uh, talk about some of the personalities involved. Dean Martin, it's usually assumed by people in the know that he wasn't in his cups. He wasn't drunk all the time. That was apple juice or something. He, it was, yeah, he liked to drink, but it was an act. Am I right about that? Oh, you know, you, you can't do that kind of eight and 12 and then wake up the next morning and, and be drinking all the time and for Dean, it was an act. It was a creative act. You know, he, he liked to drink on it in his own time, but professionally, Dean was, was a pure professional. Mm. So Dina Martin said 100%. Whenever she went up on stage with him, it was always apple juice in his class. Mm. You know, he played the part of the happy drunk, and that's what sold Dean. Um, you know, Dean Martin was, in his own life, you know, a family man in a lot of ways. He would go home, and, and Jeannie, one time Jeannie threw a party, in Beverly Hills, and it's 8 o'clock, and Dean said, I don't want any more of this. He goes up to his room, gets in his pajamas, and starts watching Westerns. And you know, all of a sudden, it's 9.30, and the party's still going on. It's loud. Dean calls the Beverly Hills police and, and has the party raided. <laughs> his own house. <laughs> his own house. Because I love it. It was bothering watching him watching the, a Western that he was enjoying. I just – I, I – I'm, I'm, it's always incredible to see how cool he is in, in all of his veneer. And uh, my favorite line is, this is as good as I'm going to be all day or something. You know, this is, <laughs> this is as good as I'm going to when I wake up. It's as good as you're going to feel all day. As good as you're going to feel all day, right. For people, yeah. <laughs> and and Dean, Dean was, was super cool. He just, in real life, just never took it seriously, played golf all day, was, was a pure professional. No matter what, mm. what you, you would say, he knew what he was doing. And and you just, you know, I just was watching him before on a, on a clip of Harry Mills, and Harry Mills was his hero as a singer. And you just, you see that 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 ease on stage that so few people have that that just that energy and ease and, and great funny had on stage. He had it his entire career. He really did until till the end when when he got down after his son died. An amazing performer. Let's talk about Sammy for a minute. You mentioned it was shortly after the accident that took his almost took his life and he lost an eye. Um, and Sammy Davis Jr., if people have read the book, Yes, I Can, what an amazing guy. One of my favorite all-time entertainers. But what was it like for him in places like Vegas? Was he... It was tough. You know, he was part of with his dad and, and, and part of the Will Maston trio. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they faced segregation wherever they went. You know, Sammy, this is during the, the time of the Rat Pack. Sammy was, 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 this was at the Sands Hotel. And in the Sands Hotel, in the pool, they had a floating crap game. And they would play crap right in the middle of the pool. Sammy decides to sw- swim at the deep end, jumps in, 
and the gamblers turn around. They tell the head of the hotel, Carl Cohn, Carl Cohn has to drain the pool and scrub oh, it. Oh, my God. Because Sammy jumped in. Wow. And how do you feel when you when you have that face shoe? Sammy was, was going with Mae Britt, who was a blonde Swedish um, actress who we eventually married. And there was tremendous hatred, and he got hate letters from everywhere about that. And Sammy wasn't even allowed to stay until Frank Sinatra put his foot down mm. in, in normal Las Vegas because there was a quarters for African-American in the downtown area. So it was a, it was a tough go. And he had so much talent. He could sing, he could dance, he could do impersonations. And on stage, there's another dynamo that you really can't capture on film. You had to see him in person to really know how much, oh. how much electricity he had. Touche. One of the most amazing performers. And I've always heard that Sinatra did indeed stick up for him and others. And he had a lot of peccadilloes, but never did anyone accuse him of not being fair when it came to race and things like that. Yet, Richard, let's take it to the stage. And if you take a look at what they did on stage in 2020, 2021, uh, you'd have the Thought Police and the woke crowd just banning them for life. Because (laughs) the stuff they did was funny as hell, and yet it was... Oh, certainly not politically correct. Comment, if you will, on the material that they did. You know, it's misogynistic, no question. It, you know, the Me Too or, or groups like that would really come down their throats in 2020. You watch Ocean's Eleven, and it's kind of a guilty pleasure, but there they talk about women as ring-a-ding-ding. We have a picture in the book, you know, striking We Want Broads with Frank and, and Dean. And it was, it's of the time. You know, it was, this was the last breath of this full-out misogyny. And no matter what, it's still, you know, 60 years later, people forgot about a lot of things, but there's maybe 20 or 30 Rat Pack tribute groups that go around the country, and people still love that kind of humor. You know, you have to tone it down, um, and you watch Ocean's Eleven and a lot of films that Frank did, you know, it was, but of the time, you have to consider, you know, the time and the place. But uh, it, it was hysterical to watch. And, you know, I, if you, I watch it with my wife, and she's like grinding her teeth watching <laughs> how Angie Dickinson's treated in, in Ocean's Eleven or, or yeah. uh, Shirley MacLaine. But, it, you know, it, it was what it was at that time. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the live performance that was captured on tape on film uh, where Dean picks up, literally picks Sammy Davis up off the floor and says, I want to thank the NAACP for this award. And I mean, obviously now it would never happen, but it's a showstopper. It brings the house down and Sammy's right there with him going along with it. Did he generally think that was the the appropriate way for him to behave? Uh, did he have well, any issues? Do you know, Sammy? Sammy did. Sammy really you know, went along with it. It was all part of the act. But the fact was that Osh, that the, the group is a rat pack, especially the one when you saw it in 1960 at the summit, every line was written, including that one. Mm. And they had the writer's name was Don Sherman. And his daughter is Amy Sherman Palatino, who writes Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> right. And Don Sherman wrote for uh, Joey Bishop. He wrote for uh, Jack Parr. He wrote for uh, a lot of comics along the way. Lenny Bruce was one of his good friends. And the act was very, very scripted. So if you saw the 8 o'clock show and you went back for the 12, you'd be seeing the same show. You'd be seeing that same joke. So that same joke that played in, uh, you saw the Dismas House in St. Louis uh, that he did that. They they did that. That joke was, was, was pre-written. And so 
Sammy knew it was coming. Everybody mm-hmm. knew it was coming. And, and you know, it's part, it was very, a very looked at lip, but it was very, very tightly written. Well, that's the magic of it, I think. And, and you're right in the middle of writing about these great guys. They were so cool in real life uh, and on stage. They just sounded like they were just making it up. And I, I can say every other show was the same, uh, and yet it was it was pure magic. In terms of the film, they made a couple of other films after Ocean's Eleven, didn't they? They did. They made a film called Sergeant's Three with the full rat pack again. <clears throat> then after Sergeant's Three, there was a falling out with Peter Lawford, then Joey Bishop. And they made a film called uh, uh, Robin and the right, Seven Hoods. Right, right. And that had Sammy, Frank, and Dean. And replacing Joey Bishop was Guy was Guy Gisborne was Peter Falk, and replacing Peter Falk was Bing Crosby. Hmm. And it was kind of there's a little irony that Bing Crosby replaced Peter Falk. I mean Peter uh, Lawford. Uh, right, right. It's funny you should say Peter Falk and Bing Crosby though. You know why? From what I understand, oh, he plays Columbo. Yeah, Bing Crosby was considered I, for the part of Columbo. <laughs> that's right. And I wrote a book called Beyond Columbo: The Life and Times of Peter Falk, which has that in there. Of course, I knew you knew that. I was just just teasing that you there. Was, that was directly from uh, uh, Dick Levinson, Lincoln Levinson, who wrote that uh, great show too. So let's talk about how things fall apart. Obviously, personalities and and Hollywood always. You know, we know about Jerry and Dean. We know about Dean and Frank and all that. But uh, politically, there was some movement uh, with Kennedy. And the famous trip to Vegas when he stays with Bing instead of Frank is huge. What happened in that affair? Well, Frank, Frank loved the idea that he was close to power. And he had put together Kennedy's inauguration. He really went around the country with the rest of the guys pushing for Kennedy. So the payoff would be that Kennedy would come and the Western White House would be in Palm Springs where Frank had this big compound. So everything's planned out. This is 1962. Everything's planned out for the president to come out and visit Frank out there. And Frank builds a heliport. He builds buildings for meetings. He builds uh, an area for the Secret Service. And everything's being built up. And then it comes out that Frank was partners with Sam Giancana at the Cal Naval Lodge with Dean Martin. And Joe Kennedy tells tells Bobby, there's no way that I want that John's going to go out there. So John and Joe Kennedy tell Peter Lawford, who's, who's the brother-in-law and son-in-law, and they said, Peter, you, you're, you're the messenger boy. And Peter goes, oh, dear God. Mm. So Peter has to call Frank and said, Frank, um, John won't be flying out uh, to you. And Frank goes, what do you mean? He goes, you know, it doesn't, you know, the, the, the old man doesn't want this, and um, he's going to be flying to Bing Crosby's house in Palm Springs instead of yours. Which makes it double, because Bing Crosby was a Republican, so Frank said, the next sound you hear, and he just slammed down on the phone, and Peter was tossed out of the next film, Robin the Seven Hoods, and tossed out of anything to do with Frank, and Frank really bad mouthed him that he was unreliable, so his career was really mm. damaged by that one move. Mm. And as we all know, uh, in a few years or a few decades later, uh, Frank is running the inauguration for Republican Ronald Reagan. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, he was old friends with Nancy and, and yeah. Frank. And, uh, Frank loved being near the power, and he loved being at the center of that. And, 
and uh, and it was an interesting uh, you know part of Frank. Well, it's so much more interesting, Richard, when you think about Giancana and Judith Exner and all the connections with Kennedy and the romance and at least what we've read about over the years. I mean, this is, this is, you couldn't make this a movie plot and expect anyone to buy it. And yet it's true. It's amazing. So in terms of the performances on stage beyond the 28 that you talked about that were the centerpiece, I know they did some Chicago and Midwestern performances, right? The next step, they filmed back in Los Angeles, and then in April of 1960, they appeared at the Fountain Blue Hotel, where they also filmed a special with Elvis Presley and Frank and Elvis kind of uh, buried the hatchet, and, you know, next generation, and so they appeared there. They appeared at the uh, Los An- in Los Angeles at the Democratic Convention, and then in Las Vegas at, at the uh, premiere of Ocean's Eleven. They did shows for... Uh, the Villa Cape Paris in for uh, Sam Giancana. Sam would, Sam would have his own encore presentation when he asked for him. Mm. So when he wanted them at his place, mm. they all showed up. Um, they they did <clears throat> eventually. They did a house a show in St. Louis. Um, they did one more show in Las Vegas in 1966. But basically, the the ramp pack on stage because he had no like no desire to go back into a team. He didn't want to be. He'd already gone through the team route with Jerry Lewis. But he didn't want to be teamed with Frank, and they all had their own separate careers. But, you know, by being together, it, it gave them all this attention. So, you know, Sammy was on Broadway during that period. You know, Frank was busy with movies and, and what he did, and, and Dean was busy with his TV show and, and all, you know, his, his appearances. 1960 was that big year. Yeah. It's really interesting. I'm remembering back, in Boston in the late 80s, I believe it was, when uh, they had a tour, and it was supposed to be Frank, Dean, and Sammy, and Frank, Dean got ill, took ill, and Liza Minnelli came in. It was, it would, for me, it would have been the coolest thing in the world to see the three of them together, but I guess it just wasn't destined to happen. No, they, they actually did appear together, and they did a few shows in Chicago, and Frank, Dean just was not up to it. His son had died. And Dean made enough money, and Dean just said, this is it. He wanted to call it a career. And so Dean backed out, you know, said he went to the hospital. Frank was really angry. They replaced her with with Liza Minnelli. And that show toured around the country for about a year. That's the one I saw, Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, they they still were, you know, Sammy was near the end of his life. He he died from cancer a couple years after that. And they didn't have that energy that they Mm. had. You know, 1960, but it was it was almost 30 years later. Right. Uh, I mean, the idea of a bunch of guys in tuxedos, most of them smoking, drinking something, and talking about women the way they did, it's just incredible. Here's one sort of philosophical question, I guess. We remember in the 80s, there was something called the Brat Pack, which I never got into, quite frankly, but there have been attempts to sort of use the name and and uh, bring up uh, new personalities, nothing compares. Will there ever be, in your estimation, a, a conflagration of talent like these guys and gals on stage? You know, I don't, you know, this was a once-in-a-lifetime event that brought really such great talent. And not just talent, these are guys who were made for the stage. These were, you know, Dean Martin was a natural on stage. Sammy Davis Jr. was so explosive. Frank was one of a kind when he went on stage in the voice and the power he held over his audience. So it was like a once in a lifetime event to have 
such great talent. I mean, there's been Woodstock and other things that have events, but mm. never like just three guys at, at the top of their game doing it like that. You might have read the book not too many years ago by Pete Hamill about Sinatra. Have you read that one? Yes, I have. About the style and the 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 thing, quote unquote, that is Sinatra. I would apply that to all three of them, the three main players, uh, because it was it was something that you really can't describe, but you know it when you see it. <laughs> I think, and that's what uh, that's what struck me. And I'm younger; yeah, I didn't you, see them you, live. You knew you knew you're in the middle of a magical time, and that's what people realize in those 28 days that this is something you're not going to see again. And they were they're 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 poor and they're. They're, they're the way they could play off of each other and the way they they, uh, they, they just held the audience in the palm of their hand. And, and Sinatra, and I have, I have seen Sinatra on stage, he's just, just absolutely amazing the way he held an audience. Mm. Um, I used to watch, I saw Dean Martin in Las Vegas, and he was great on stage. He was so cool and funny, and he played his drunk act, and he just, uh, and, and Sammy was the same, just amazing. It's funny, too, as I think about this talking with you, and I'm so delighted to have you as a guest. I'm thinking of the remake of the film Ocean's Eleven with George Clooney, an all-star cast. It was a lot of fun, Carl Reiner. If you go back and watch the original, albeit dated, there's something so special about that one. I mean, everything about it, the fact that it's in Vegas and it's them, it's all these guys getting together. And people like Henry Silva, who I thought was one of my favorites, whether he played a villain or not. I mean, all these great character actors got together, too. it's uh, tough yeah, to they duplicate. Have everybody from Cesar Romero to uh, <laughs> Hank, Frank's old friend Hank Henry, yeah. who I got to meet. And uh, he had every you know great character actor that was that was part of the cast. Uh, Norman Fell and, and others were. In oh it. yeah, and yeah. it was fun scene. It was like a time warp of of Las, of Las Vegas. You'll not you would not see after that because no. after they were there and after this film. Las Vegas exploded. Caesar's Palace popped up at Circus Circus. But that was a different place and a different time. It's great to watch on film. Well, your book will bring back that life, at least uh, in our imaginations, which is great. And it's called Deconstructing the Rat Pack, Joey the Mob and the Summit. Tell me a little bit about Lon Davis, too. I'm reading his background here. He's uh, quite a interesting gentleman, what he's written. Well, Lon's a good friend of mine. Lon is a, uh, a film historian. He's uh, written books uh, from silent film to, uh, he's just written a book on the Keystone Cops called Chase. And Lon's done, uh, Lon has edited a documentary that'll be on TCM about uh, Francis X. Bushman, who was in Ben-Hur and uh, mm. had a long career. And uh, just, uh, Lon is a, a really uh, a film aficionado and television aficionado knows uh, what I forgot he knows. <laughs> well, you know a lot, believe me, and uh, you've been sharing it with me and, and sharing it with others. I want to wish you the best. It was great to meet you and uh, continue success as we relive a tremendous moment in entertainment history. Thank you so much, Richard. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, George. Thanks again, Richard A. Lertzman, co-author along with Lon Davis of Deconstructing the Rat Pack, Joey, the Mob, and the Summit. A must-read for my listeners. You'll love the book. Thanks again to everyone who makes this show possible. Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, Ken Carberry at Chart Productions, and certainly to all of you podcast listeners who continue to spread the word. And we recently surpassed 42,000 independent listens, and we appreciate that. Again, details about me and my new book on air, available at jordanrich.com. I will see you next time. Until then, be well so you can do good. Take care.